0: Well, good evening, ABC College. Hope you are doing well on this Wednesday here in May as the summer begins. Uh, Thank you so much for tuning in to our Theology and Doctrine series that we're calling CORE, looking at the essentials of what Christians believe. Uh, We're here in week three, and we're excited to kind of move on on onto another topic. Uh, The past two weeks, we've been talking about the Bible and what it is and why can we trust it, And I really thought that was a helpful thing for us to look at. I hope it was an equipping time for you. But this week, we're kind of moving on to the next question in that discussion, or in this discussion, which is, okay, if the Bible reveals to us spiritual truth like we talked about a few weeks ago, if the Bible reveals God to us, then who is God? So that's our question for tonight, is who is God? And obviously, we could spend the whole summer talking about who is God, and that would lead to so many other deep questions that we could talk about. But for the sake of our scope this summer, we're gonna limit those just a little bit. Uh, But as we talk about this idea of who is God, uh, I wanna give really a couple of book recommendations to kinda help you out. And if you wanna go deeper into the study of the character of God, the attributes of God, you can do that. So three recommendations I wanna make really quick are first the book Knowing God by J.I. Packer. The second is The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer, both those books being classic books on knowing God and His attributes. But also the third one is one about the Trinity called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. Fantastic book that will probably blow your mind some on what it means for God to be the Trinity. So as we talk about who is God tonight, those are some great resources for you to go deeper if you want to. Uh, But that last book actually kind of leads us into our conversation tonight because like I said, we can't talk about every bit of who God is just in a couple of weeks here and then move on to something else. So what we're going to do is limit our scope of who God is, but talk about what I believe is probably the most misunderstood and maybe um, neglected in some ways part of God's character, but I think the most crucial and important part of who He is, and that's God being the Trinity. And when I say neglected, I don't mean like we don't think about it, but it's just I don't know if we realize how much implication the Trinity has in our understanding of God. So for the next two weeks, we're going to talk about what is the Trinity and how does it really uh, affect our own faith and why does it matter? So let's talk about that first question for just a minute. Like, what is the Trinity as we get in this conversation? Because if you've grown up in church much, you've maybe heard a few things about it, but you may be more confused about the Trinity than anything. You know, you may have heard a lot of unhelpful analogies. You know, we'll get into that. Um, but let's just start first off by saying, okay, what does it mean for God to be, you know, a Trinity? Well, you're not going to find that word in the Bible for sure. But you are going to find the concept of God being three in one all throughout the scriptures. And actually, that word Trinity was coined by the church father Tertullian about the third century. And before that, it wasn't a word that was used. But like I said, the concept is all over the Bible. But if you want a helpful definition of Trinity, I'll give you one here from Jerry Brashears. Uh, He says it this way, and this is a very compact but helpful definition. He says, The Trinity is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, who are each fully and equally God in eternal relation with each other. And so from that definition, I want to kind of split it up into three separate parts. And this actually comes from another theologian, Wayne Grudem. He breaks the Trinity up into these three ideas. He says that, number one, there's only one God. Number two, God is three distinct persons. And number three, each person is fully God. So for just a minute, let's break down those uh, a little bit more succinctly and talk about them. So that first idea, there's only one God. Well, the Bible is very clear on this, that God is the only true God. But it also is clear that there are lots of other little g gods that exist in the world. You know, first off, we can think of angels and demons, created spiritual beings that exist in the world. And God is the God over all of them. He is the Lord of them. He created them, and the demons are rebelled angels, but God is still Lord over them as created spiritual beings. He's the only true God who is worthy of worship. But also, there's other little g gods, you know, gods like money and sex and power. Who may have some, you know, influence from demonic forces, but they also can be things that compete with um, our worship. But yet they're not worthy of worship. The only one worthy of worship is the, the one true God. There's only one God. There are not, you know, a plethora of gods out in the world like Hinduism would teach. You know, we can't become a God like Mormonism would teach. There's only one true God and it's Yahweh. But the second idea we see in this Trinity is that there is Uh, That the three persons of the Trinity are all distinct. Um, If you look at some of these different aspects of it, we have the Father and the Son are referred to all over the New Testament as individual persons, not the same thing. In the same way, the Father and the Spirit and Jesus are referred to as distinct persons, and not the same thing. If you go through and read the New Testament letters and the Gospel of John, you'll find all this to be pretty clear. Um, But also we see, like you see on the screen here, the Spirit is also referred to as being completely God and not just some kind of impersonal force that exists out in the world. We see very personal things uh, about the Spirit that tell us that it is not just a force, but it's actually a person. Uh, Things like this, that in Ephesians 4, the Spirit can be grieved. Uh, In Acts 7, the Spirit can be resisted. Uh, In Hebrews 10, uh, the, the Spirit can be insulted. All these things that tell us that the Spirit is a person and not just some kind of force. But also we see that that third thing here in the Trinity is that each person of the Trinity is fully God. Well, obviously, you know, that God the Father being fully God kind of makes sense. That's kind of understood. But also, we got to remember that Jesus is also fully God. And we'll take time to unpack this a lot more in a few weeks when we talk about the person of Christ. But it's really important to remember Right off the bat, that Jesus himself called himself God numerous times throughout his time on earth. That the Bible and the story of the Bible, like we talked about a few weeks ago, makes it clear that Jesus was God and is God. And ultimately, in Christ's life, that's what led to his crucifixion, was that he claimed to be God and was accused of blasphemy. So I think Jesus being God and and God the Father being God, many of us understand that. But I think sometimes the third part of the Trinity, the Spirit, we don't always think about it in the same way as being fully God. But the Holy Spirit, like we said, is not just a force, but it's also fully God. The, the Bible itself makes it clear, and the Bible shows that the Spirit has all of the same attributes of God. Consider some of these. Genesis 1 shows us the Spirit is active at work in creating the world. Hebrews 14 describes the Spirit as being eternal. Acts 1.8 describes the Spirit as being powerful. Isaiah 14 describes the Spirit as all-knowing. Psalm 139 describes the Spirit as ever-present. In Acts 5, the Spirit gets used interchangeably with God. So the Bible makes it clear that the Spirit is just as much God as any other part of the Trinity. So we talk about the Spirit. We're not talking about some kind of force or feeling. We're talking about God as well. So, that's, so that third part, part of this picture of the Trinity shows us that why, while every part of the Trinity is clear and distinct and that they're their own persons, they're also all still God. Now, that may make your head hurt. It's kind of part of uh, the difficulty of the Trinity. It's why we struggle with it many times. And next week, we'll talk about some misunderstandings of the Trinity. But this is the clear and simple truth of the Trinity and what it is. So, well, the second question we're going to look at tonight is, okay, if God is Trinitarian, three in one, well, what is this Trinitarian God like? You know, what, what is God like? Well, we could spend a lot of time talking about that, but I'm going to boil it down to just a few things. The first is this, is that God is love. You know, 1 John 4, 8 famously says that, that God is love, and we get that thrown around a lot. But what does that really mean, you know, for God to be love? Well, I think it means this. It means that God is the very definition. He's the very example and the very source of love. Because real love isn't a feeling. Real love isn't an emotion. But you think about it, real love is to lay down your life for someone else. Love in itself is self-giving. It's to serve somebody else. It's externally oriented. That you can't truly love by yourself. So to say that God is love is to say that yes, God is loving. That's true. But it's also to say that God is a community of love Within himself, Because for God to be loved, He has to have something to love, which would be the, each part of the Trinity. I love the way that Jerry Bashir says it here. He says, In the very nature of God, there is a continuous outpouring of love, communication, and oneness, because God is a relational community of love. And even consider just some of these statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John about this. He says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. The Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself was doing. I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. So we see this, that in the very identity of God, we see the definition and example of loving community. That's why we all, as human beings, have this desire to be known, to be loved, to be in community. It's because we're made in the image of God who is a community and a loving community within Himself. That's why we have that deep desire. But not only is God love, God is also Yahweh. Uh, That's his proper name that he uses for himself in the Bible. Uh, Literally, the word Yahweh in Hebrew means this. It means, I am who I am. As if to say that God is, you know, the only one that is like himself. He's the only one that exists like he does. You know, and while there's other parts of God's character that we'll talk about in a minute that, you know, we can relate to, To say that God is I Am and to say that He's Yahweh is really to say this, that God also has many parts of Himself that are very different than us, that God is a distinct being different than us. Sometimes these attributes that God is different than us, they get called the incommunicable attributes of God. They're the ways that God is different. And some of those attributes are things like this, that God is independent, that God needs nothing else to exist, that God never changes. He always stays the same. That God has always existed, and He will always exist. He's eternal. That God is omnipresent. He's present everywhere and at the same time. That God is a spiritual being. He doesn't need a physical body, but He's a spirit. That God is all-powerful. all He can do anything there is that can be done. He has no limit on His strength. Those are all parts of the incommunicable attributes of God. There are ways that God is very different than us and very other than us. But if you go back to thinking about God being uh, Yahweh, that being His name, that reveals a lot more to us even than just his, his otherness. But it also reveals His holiness, because God's name is so sacred that in the book of Leviticus, uh, that book warns the people of Israel that if anyone uses God's name in a blasphemous way, that they, they should be put to death. Now that was for Israel at that time. We're not doing martial law today um, or holy law today, you know, in America. But that was a, a principle handed to Israel. For them, that they put them, they should put them to death if they use God's name in a blasphemous way. And that led the Jews, you may know this, but that led the Jews to eventually not even speak the name of God out loud out of fear and really reverence for God's name. Even when they were reading the Old Testament, you know, in Bible study, that they wouldn't read God's name out loud. But instead, when they got to the word Yahweh in the Hebrew, they would replace it with Adonai, which means Lord. So in your Bible, when you're reading the Old Testament, anytime you see the word, uh, Lord in lowercase all caps, you can know that that's actually the word Yahweh in, uh, in the Hebrew. It's God using his proper name. Uh, but even, you know, for more on what God is like, consider also another verse that we're going to look at here, Exodus, uh, 34. Uh, these verses here are honestly probably the most quoted passage in the Bible in other parts of the Bible. The Bible refers to this description of God over and over again. In the Bible. So let's read these passages together to get more of an idea of what God is like. Exodus thirty four, six and seven says this says the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and the children's children, into the third and the fourth generation. So there's a lot in there that we could talk about. But I just want to point out some of the characteristics of God that we see in those verses. First one we see is God is Lord, that God rules over everything and every person, that He's He's in control of all things. He's all-powerful. God also is a person, and He has a name. That God, and this is important, this is huge, God wants to relate to us personally, Not as some kind of impersonal force, you know, like like Star Wars, you know, or, or not even as a system that we kind of earn our way to be good enough for God or something. But no, God is a person. He wants to relate to us as a person. God is also merciful and compassionate, we see here, that God sees our pain. He sees our suffering in life. He knows our hurt. And He wants to respond to that, and He has responded to that, in love. That God is also gracious. That God chooses to love us, He chooses to serve us, not because that we're so lovable that He has to come to us, not because we deserve it, but because God wants to um, come and show grace to us. It's part of who He is, that God is loving and gracious, that he, He's so self-giving that He comes to choose to serve us, to rescue us. God is also slow to anger, that God is patient with us. You know, God doesn't have a short fuse with us, but instead He desires for everyone to repent, Everyone to change their mind and turn their um, back on sin and rebellion and come and submit their lives to Him. God desires everyone to do that. He wants them to turn and trust in Him and to know Him as their Heavenly Father. God is patient with us in that. That He doesn't have a short fuse, but that He He's long-suffering in the midst of our rebellion against Him, hoping that we'll turn back to Him. God is also, according to this, He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You know That word in the original Hebrew, is actually the word "hesed," which means God's constant, limitless, and always pursuing love for us. That His love is a hesed, steadfast kind of love. God's also dependable and truthful. That God never fails. That God never lies. He's, he's always true to His promises. That we can trust His promises. That we can put all of our hope in Him. We can put all of our hope in what He says. That it will come true, and that it's true about Him is true about us. God's also forgiving. That God is aware of our sin, but also He's willing and able to forgive anybody who repents. He's willing to forgive anybody who comes to Him seeking forgiveness. He's not up there just looking to just punish everyone, but He wants to forgive in compassion and love and mercy. It's why He sent Jesus. But also we see here at the end of these verses that God is just, that He's a perfect and holy and good God who does not leave evil unpunished, that no one who rejects God Um, And no one who rejects His offer of forgiveness is going to have any excuse for not being punished because of who He is being good, loving, and forgiving, but also being just. And that may seem harsh to say that God is going to punish everyone for their sin who who doesn't repent, but honestly, in our heart of hearts, that's really what we all, all ultimately want, is that we want a God who is completely just and perfect and fair. Because, you know, so often when we see suffering and injustice in the world, we have these cries that kind of rise up in culture. Where we want to see justice happen. We see injustice, we want justice to happen. We want fairness to happen. You know, we want the courts to declare certain things and, um, and, you know, declare people guilty and have them put away or be punished or whatever. And that, that's, those are all good things that come to us from being made in the image of God, desiring justice. But ultimately, those are all things that show our connection to a ultimately just God who will leave no sin unpunished. It's not forgiven in Christ because Christ took it on. But God is a God who's not going to leave evil unpunished in the world, but that ultimately God is going to exact perfect justice, that He's going to eradicate sin and evil in the world. And that's really what we all want in the end is a God who is like that. So it may seem harsh to say God is a God who punishes sin, but that's what we really want in the end. But thank God that He punishes uh, our sin, us who are Christians, He punishes that sin in Christ and not on us. And everyone has an invitation to receive that as well. So those are all things we see in Exodus, just that short passage there about who God is. But another question we can ask then is, okay, what is, does the Old Testament go back to the Trinity more? Does the Old Testament really support this doctrine of the Trinity? Is it in the Old Testament? Well, it's actually in there a lot more than you would think. I'll give you a couple examples. Let's look first at Genesis 1, just the first two verses of the Bible. Genesis 1, 1 and 2 says this, talking about creation. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Look at those verses and it's interesting because if you get into the Hebrew, there's two words that are really kind of important. The word for beginning in Hebrew is the word reshit. But also there's another parallel word in Hebrew called the word bakor. And it means Firstborn. If you go and you do some researching, and rabbis have done this, you'll find that in the Bible, many times, Rashid, meaning beginning, and Bekor, being firstborn, they're used interchangeably in the Old Testament, meaning that oftentimes they can have the same meaning. So that has led some rabbis to translate Genesis 1 this way. They added something. They said, "...in the beginning, by the firstborn, God created the heavens and the earth." And so on right there. So in that, right there, we see not just God the Father creating the world, but what do we see? We see God the Son, by the firstborn over all creation, also creating. We see all, and we see the Spirit in here hovering over the water. So we all see, we see all three parts of the trendy. And that has support even in the way that Paul talks about creation in Colossians 1. Paul says it this way. He describes Jesus as the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. So we see Jesus was there present at creation. And if the Spirit was there and then the Father was there, we have all three of the Trinity very clearly depicted right there in Genesis 1, right in the beginning of the Bible. And another example, also in Genesis 1 is that at the end of Genesis 1, God uses the plural we to refer to himself, saying, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. So we see the trendy really all over even the first chapter of the Bible. But then two other quick instances of the trendy we see in the Old Testament is first the angel of the Lord mentioned in the Old Testament that many times uh, in Old Testament God appears in physical form uh, and he interacts with people in physical ways. Uh, examples include like Abraham in Genesis 18, you know, wrestling with Jacob in Genesis 32, appearing to Moses in Exodus 3, and we could go on and on. Even the, the fiery furnace with Daniel. But those all could be potential appearances of God in physical form, but God in physical form is Jesus. So those could be appearances of Christ even in the Old Testament. So we can see even uh, the second person of the Trinity there. Uh, but also we have references to the Lord sending a son. Uh, Psalm 110.1 says this, it says, The Lord, uh, yeah, it's not on the screen, sorry. But it says, Psalm 110.1, The Lord, which would be the Father, says to my Lord, the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's one reference that we have of, of potentially uh, the Son, Jesus, being in the Old Testament. But also, uh, consider Isaiah 48.16. It says, Draw near to me, hear this. From the beginning I have not spoken in secret, From the time it came to be, I've been there. And now the Lord God the Father, or God being the Father, has sent me, being the Son, and His Spirit. So I read those random verses that say this, is that we see all these occasions even in the Old Testament of God the Father sending a Son in some way. So we see other aspects of the Trinity at work here. As there are all these examples in the Old Testament of God unfolding slowly this mystery of the Trinity to us. But then we have in the New Testament. The more clear revelation of the Trinity. I'll give you a couple examples of just the clear revelation of the Trinity in the New Testament. Consider just uh, Mary's conception of Jesus in Luke 1. It says, The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High, being the Father, will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God, Jesus. We have two parts of the Trinity right there. Uh, consider even Jesus' baptism, probably the most clear picture of the Trinity. In Matthew 3, it says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately He went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to Him, and He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and coming to rest on Him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So right there we have all three clearly shown people or persons of the Trinity in Matthew 3. Even the Great Commission is is Trinitarian. We see, oh sorry, go back here, um, Matthew 28, we see that, says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So we see the three people of the Trinity even right there. And the letters of the New Testament, they're filled with all kinds of references to the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And throughout the New Testament, we see a really cool picture of even the distinct roles that the Trinity has. And I have them on the screen here. We see that the Father is the one that predestined our salvation and sent His Son to die for us. We see that the Son comes and lives and dies for our sins. He's sent by the Father. And we also see that the Spirit comes and lives in Christians to bring us new life, to regenerate us, but also to empower us with spiritual gifts and to be able to serve in the church and live for the glory of God. So we see that the Trinity, even each person out of the Trinity has specific roles that they play. It's called the economic Trendy sometimes. But even look at the way that Jesus describes the trendy in John 14. He says this believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit. So we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit right there. And I, I want to encourage you go back and read John 14 through 17. Some of the last time that Christ has with his disciples, he talks a ton about the Trinity. So to him, the Trinity was very important if he spent some of his last moments with it, with his disciples before his crucifixion talking about it. So I think it's a big thing for us to look at. But we see this. We see that the Trinity gives us the fullest revelation of the character and the heart of God. That it's the clearest revelation of him. The Bible is consistent all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament that God is three in one how that is essential to His nature, and it's essential to how He relates and interacts with us. It's even essential to how salvation works, and we'll unpack more of that even throughout future coming weeks. But for this week, we're going to stop right here, um, and next week we'll answer a few more questions uh, about the Trinity. We'll get into a little bit of history, things like that. So here's what uh, we'll talk about in a few weeks, or next week, excuse me. We'll talk about, is the Trinity supported by church history? Uh, How can we misunderstand the Trinity? You know, why does, the, why does the doctrine of the trendy really matter? And how does the trendy affect my everyday life? So, this week we kind of did the more biblical theology, looking at the trendy all throughout the Bible. Next week, we'll talk, you know, a little bit more history and even like why does this matter even for my own life. So, I hope this has been helpful for you tonight. As always, don't forget that you can text in questions that you may have about each topic we're talking about. And honestly, even if you have a question that's not completely related to some of this stuff, but you're still curious, uh, please feel free to text that number. We'd love to answer those questions. If I can't get to it on a Wednesday night, maybe we can have a more personal conversation about it. But either way, I hope you guys are enjoying the study. Hope you're having a great week. And uh, we will hopefully see you Sunday morning on Zoom. If not, we'll see you around pretty soon. But you guys have a great night.